Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 with Pastor John King. Well, good morning. We're going to uh, continue, as you know, we're going to continue in the book of Colossians this morning. And, uh, hey, you guys. And uh, we are going to cover verses 15 through 20 of Colossians. We've already read that portion uh, during our worship time, our, our music time. Um, and I just want to encourage you guys because this is, this is the answer, what we're reading. You know, the whole, all of God's Word is uh, perfect. It's, it's for, it has a purpose for everything. But this today is the answer for those who might acknowledge Jesus' existence, whether historically or whatnot, but it's the answer for those that say, well, you know, he's, that's a good start. Jesus is a good place to get going. You know, he was a good man. Um, we like what he did in the social justice realm. Uh, we don't much care for what Paul had to say. So we'll just kind of go with what Jesus had to say. And then we'll create our own thing. We'll start to add to Jesus. And we're going to find out today, as you already know, you don't add anything to Jesus. He is everything. He is preeminent. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Warren Wiersbe wrote this. He said, people apparently, this, is, this is was Paul when he was preaching to and writing this letter to the Colossians. He said, people were apparently saying that Jesus was a good start, but that other beliefs and practices had to be added. And Paul responds by affirming that nothing needs to be added to the work of Christ. As Lord of all creation... He is more than enough for every believer. So right away, you have your application right there. He is more than enough. Do not think that you have to add anything for him. Now today, we're going to learn of the supremacy and sufficiency of his person, Christ's person, and his redemptive work. And the more you and I get a hold of this truth, the more equipped we'll be to deal with the false teaching, the legalism, any mysticism or new age things that come our way, even traditionalism. You know, uh, this particular passage is one of many in the New Testament that were considered hymns in the days of the early church. The Bible wasn't printed yet. There were letters passed around. But this particular passage was one of the hymns that they sang together. And it would be sort of like uh, a modern-day creed, if you will. And of course, creeds started very early in the church. But uh, we've read it already, so I'm not going to go through and, and read it again. We'll start with the first uh, verse of Colossians, verse 15. But before I do that, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to, you know, our desire today, I pray that our desire today is to refocus our eyes on you. There are many things in our world, in our lives, be it our struggle and spiritual battles, be it the self-talk that we have that we're so frequent to do, be it the external things, the mass media, the craziness of our world. Uh, we, we don't, we don't want to hide from reality, Lord, but we want to find our heart and our, our minds rested and secure in you while we're here in this temporary location, while we're still strangers and sojourners in this world, we want to be secure in you. And we want to be able to 
tell others about you. And that's why we desire to be equipped by your word and by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, I simply ask that you go before us and help us, Lord, to be strengthened, to be encouraged, maybe to be corrected. Whatever you want to do with your word to us today, may we be willing for that to happen. So we ask that you go before us now. And we simply give you thanks and praise. And we also pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, first of all, if you're taking notes, we're going to talk about the supremacy of his person. First of all, first and foremost, in verse 15, we see that he is the visible manifestation of an invisible God. He's the visible manifestation of an invisible God. He is the image or icon, if you will. That's the Greek word for image is icon. And we see that in this passage. We see it in Corinthians as well. And that speaks of, you know, to, to some degree, the incarnation of Jesus. Now, biblically, we see the word image used in three primary ways in the Bible. It's physical, spiritual, and relational. But keep in mind that Jesus, through the incarnation, made it so that God was accessible to our human senses. If you look at all the other world religions, philosophies, whatever man-made, dreamed up, crazy, demonically inspired belief systems, you will not find God, if they happen to have God in that particular belief system, who came as a man... You won't find God as somebody that you and I can relate to. You won't find that. But we find that in Christ. That's what makes it so remarkable that God would send His only begotten Son in the flesh so that you and I could relate to Him. And Paul, though, he's not only talking about his physical appearance, which really wasn't all that spectacular. He was a man of, you know, he had no reputation But he's really speaking also of the character of God that's being represented through Jesus Christ in the flesh. I like what Hughes wrote. He said, sometimes the Greek word icon itself meant picture. As when an ancient soldier sent a portrait to his father with a note, Dad, I sent you a little portrait of myself painted by the famous painter at that time. Now, from this kind of usage, we can say that Jesus is the portrait of God. However, the meaning goes even beyond this because of the icon, the image of God. It also carries the idea of revealing the personal character of God. We see this in some of the text in wisdom wisdom literature, Proverbs 8, you see it. And this is where wisdom, and you've read the Proverbs, this is where wisdom is described as an icon, as an image. An image or revelation of God's goodness. We sang about that. Your goodness. God's goodness. We sang to the Lord about that this morning. And so Christ, he writes, is the image of the invisible God. It's not just a plaster representation of him. But the revelation of what God is really like. The writer of Hebrews expressed the same thought in a very powerful language. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Greek word translated exact representation here is meant to talk about the impression left by a die on a coin or a seal or on wax. And he is the exact impression of the essence of God. Now look, if you, if you wrestle with this theological view of God, you know, his dual nature and, and how he represents, don't, you're not alone. You're not, not alone at all. In fact, the early church fathers spent centuries, decade upon decade, just dealing with the nature of Jesus, just dealing with the fact that he's fully God and fully man. And so sometimes you have to, you have to let the mystery just lie where it is. But hopefully today, we'll, may, we'll maybe have a, a clearer understanding, if you will. So he is, as we said, in case you don't believe in Jesus, or you don't think Jesus was anything special, that he was just a great man in history, he's the visible manifestation of the invisible God. That, that is who he is. He is also holding ownership rights over all creation. He holds the ownership rights. He is preeminent over all things. The text says he is the firstborn over all creation prior to that protoochus, protoochus, Greek word that I can't pronounce very well. Not his physical birth, really, but the incarnation to the, or the incarnation to the Virgin Mary. It's, it's his order. It speaks of the order when he says firstborn, the order of precedence. In fact, we know that he wasn't created. He always was. Boy, it adds to the mystery, doesn't it? Not as the Jehovah's Witnesses would falsely teach you, if you've had that experience or you've heard their doctrine. They would say that Jesus was the first person actually created. Well, he's the uncreated one. And this was similar to the early church heresy of Arianism, which was, you know, thrown out. There's things you got to throw out, folks, when people come to you with these wacky, crazy ideas. You got you to can them and stick to God's word. This firstborn means first in rank or honor. That's what we're talking about. Psalm 89, 27. He says, also, I will make him, Jesus, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth over all creation. So he's the firstborn over all creation. He is the sum. Jesus is the sum of all created things. It says in verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. The totality of all created things. And we know that, you know, we've got these super telescopes now and they can see the universe like it's never been seen before. He is the creator of all those things. And by him all things were created. But notice that this also includes the visible and the invisible. The visible and the invisible. Things that are open to view through a telescope or a microscope or with your eyes and things that you and I cannot see. Whether thrones, now speaking of the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. 
This is in those heavenly places, the unseen realm, as some have said, where you have a rank of authority of angelic powers. They, they sit in ranks of authority. Some, since the fall of man, are in rebellion to God. The Gnostics, who we learned about of a little bit last week, you know, the false teachers that Paul was addressing here, taught that Christ was a spiritual emanation. A spiritual emanation from the true God. But here Paul boldly said that he is the true God who created everything, even the invisible spirit world. All things were created through him and for him. He's the first cause of all things. And he's also the end goal of all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 22:13. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is also, verse 17, before all things. And in him, all things consist Again, he was uncreated. He is before, prior to all created things, before the, as Chuck Swindoll would say, before the planets, before the galaxies, before matter and energy, before time and space, as far back as our finite minds can hope to imagine, God the Son was already there. Theologians call this co-eternality. He's co-eternal with the, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. If he existed before anything that was created, that makes him, even logically, if you're a logical person, uncreated. If Jesus existed before anything was created, what does that make him? Uncreated. And notice, in him all things consist. Now, this is amazing for you science fans, for those of you who are into the atomic uh, age, you're into atoms and molecules and the substance of things. In Jesus Christ, all things are held in place, in their, in their place that they belong, in their perfect place. Yes, we're in a fallen world, but all things are held in place. All of the elements, all the stars and the moon, everything is held in place. It is said of the universe as being upheld by the Lord himself. The atomic age most of us were born into has shed quite a bit of understanding of the structure contained in an atom. An atom, according to the popular definition, an atom is a particle that consists of a nucleus of protein, protons and neutrons surrounded by a cloud of electrons. You've seen it in your science class. It's you know, like a little miniature galaxy, right? It's a little miniature uh, solar system. The story goes like this. A guide took a group of people through an atomic laboratory and explained how all matter was composed of rapidly moving electric particles. The tourists studied models of molecules and were amazed to learn that matter is made up primarily of space. These atomic particles have a space between the little, the things you can't see. And so there's a gap. There's a space. And so during the question period, one of the visitors asked the guide, well, if this is the way that matter works, what holds it all together? 
For that, the guide had no answer. But the Christian has an answer, and that's Jesus Christ. Because he is before all things, he can hold all things together. This is another affirmation that Jesus Christ is God. Only God exists before all of creation, says one writer. And only God can make creation cohere. To make Jesus Christ less than God is to dethrone him. You're like, man, this is, well, you know, we're going into all this stuff. Yeah, people, we're, as believers, we're going to wrestle with this. Okay, the early, those who saw the Lord with his own, you know, at work, they all wrestled with this. We're going to see that here in a little bit. It says here, though, here we are. We're the church, okay? We're, you know, here we are together, a local body of believers. In verse 18, and it says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the church. He is prominent. He's supreme. Now, you, you talk about the church. You know, we, people always, it's, it seems like you always have to explain this, right? What's the church? Well, ecclesia, the church at large, all around the world. We've got a planet of 8 billion people right now. And maybe a third of them are professing Christians. So you have the church, the worldwide body of true and faithful believers. And those who have are living or have lived and died during the present age of grace. That's the church. We'll learn a lot more about that when we get to Thessalonians, about the church and the age of grace. However, he's the head of the body. And so, you know, we, we're just, as you know, this is kind of obvious to all of us. We're just part of the bigger picture when it comes to the church. But I'll notice he is not only head of the body, he is also the beginning, the originator. He's the first person. He said he would build his church, Matthew 16, 18. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there, speaking of his church. And he did. In Acts 2, 1, in the day of Pentecost, when it finally came, they were all in one accord together. And the Holy Spirit came and lit the flame, if you will, and the church was born. So he is the source, the origin, the leader. The church operates under him. Through his spirit, he supplies life. He gives spiritual gifts to edify, to lead, and to serve. He nourishes and cleanses the church through his word. As part of the local church, we have joined together to build and strengthen his body in our location. So Jesus was a good starting point. No, 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 no. He was before all things. He created all things. And he is the head of the church. Notice he is also firstborn from the dead. Now in verse 15, we said he is firstborn, first in rank over all creation. But here we have the word used in reference to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He was, New Living Translation says, he was supreme over all who rise from the dead. Now you may be asking yourself a question. Jesus wasn't the first person to be resurrected or risen from the dead. We know of Lazarus and many others in the Bible. But only through his resurrection to eternal life with the Father can believers share in the same glorious promise. Remember, the resurrection power that allows us to do many things, but mainly to share in the glorious power of our future in heaven. 
Uh, I, one guy said it this way. He, he, he said what you may be thinking. It seems odd that Paul used the word born in connection with death. For the two concepts seem opposed to each other. But he says, but the tomb was a womb from which Christ came forth in victory for death could not hold him. The son was begotten in resurrection glory. And notice the end of that verse that in all things he may have preeminence. In everything. He holds first place. He is to have the highest rank in everything. Now when you start hearing, when you hear that, that brings conviction to your heart, doesn't it? Because you've put some things before him. I've put things before him. I've put my worries and my cares before him. But we're just being reminded today that he is actually the one who, who is the highest rank. And so therefore he is to have the highest rank in our hearts and minds. And the things in the way we live our lives. As I said before, you should start to get a sense as you read this passage as to why scholars and theologians consider this to be the most complete and comprehensive response to the false teachers and cults of the day, past and present. The preeminence of Christ literally shreds the arguments. Now, if somebody's willing to have a conversation with you, some people, and today we just, you know, talk past each other when we're witnessing or whatever we're doing. But when you have a chance to really talk to somebody and have a two-way conversation, you set this belief uh, next to the other positions that are taken. And if the person is open, maybe intellectually they can admit that God is supreme. But that's only the beginning. Because you also have to have a fertile heart and fertile soil by which to receive Christ as your Savior. And some of you in this room, he may be working on you right now. He may be working on your hearts right now to prepare your heart to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Now to any and all who would dare to assert that Jesus was simply a starting point to a greater work of spirituality um, and enlightenment or some man-made utopia or a better world, God's word says absolutely not. God's word says, go ahead, Mr. Harari, you take your AI and you create a universal Bible for all believers. You take everything through AI that's out there that you can create this fake Bible, but it will never replace who Jesus Christ is. And be such an influencer. May Jesus be the influencer in your heart and mind. And he is, and he will. Because everything exists for him. Now you say, what about Satan and his demons? We talked about that a little bit. Remember that because of the fall, we are in a period of time where God's creation is still under bondage to sin. Romans 8.22, you can read it for yourself. Until Christ returns and the final battle is won, God's plan and purposes actually includes those evil entities. But they are never, ever in control of this world. Sometimes you think they are, don't you? But they're not. Because in him all things consist. He holds all things together. I wrestled with bringing up this topic. So I'm going to talk about it very briefly because it's kind of, it's kind of new. It's not, I'm not going to say much about it. But what about aliens and UFOs? You say, wait a minute. What are you talking about? 
hey, you guys have been hearing about it as much as I have been, maybe more. I don't give it much credence myself. The reason is because we have no biblical indication that there's alien life on other planets. And I could go into a long dissertation about that. We don't have time. But here's what I do believe. You know, people are seeing things they can't explain, things that move very fast. They can turn on, literally on a dime at a super high speed. They don't know what's going on. Many have speculated that a demonic alien deception could just be another indication here we are in the last days before Jesus returns for his church. Many, many, many are speculating that. If it's not man-made and it's not God-made, it's got to be, well, it is God-made. If it's a fallen angel or fallen demons, they, who knows what kind of power they have to do. And who knows how well they could deceive this world. Again, I could go too far with this and so I won't. But keep that in mind. There is no biblical indication that there's any alien life on other planets. And there's no scientific indication that there's no alien life on other planets yet. They, they have their hopes. Because what it does, it would feed the evolutionists' narrative. And they would solve that problem. They could feed that back to Mr. Harari when he creates his AI Bible. Anyway, moving on. God's perspective. Now, all that we've said about Jesus, what does God the Father think about all this? Well, let's listen to what he has to say. First of all, God was pleased to become incarnate in his Son. The Father was pleased to become, it says here, I'll read it, for it pleased the Father in him, that in him all the fullness should dwell. God was pleased that his fullness should dwell in Christ, in the incarnate Jesus Christ. Not merely the understanding of what is good, you know, it's right, you know, God, God's pleased with his son, not, nothing like that really, but stressing the willingness and the freedom of intention or resolve regarding what's good. You know, God's wisdom and God's plan. In him, he says, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And you see, this is another reason why we don't need anything to add to Jesus. We don't need to add things to his word. We have everything we need in him. Now, apparently these false teachers use that same word, fullness, to their own you know, devices, if you will. They use that same word of fullness to present their own teachings. And so Paul is meeting them head on to answer and to say that God himself is fully present in Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul's going to repeat this again. He's going to say, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hughes writes, he says, this means that we need to look to no one except to Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. We need to look to no one except Jesus for the full revelation of God's character. If God can only be perceived in closely reasoned theological language, only the most brilliant could understand him. And if you've read scholars and smart people in this world, of which I am not, you would understand it. Man, it gives you a headache just trying to, you know, get into their 
what they're trying to say to you, first of all, let alone half the, the meaning of 90% of the words they use. Only the most brilliant could understand him, he says. But the fullness was in Christ. And all we have to do is look at him. And as we see him in the Gospels and hear him preached, we can know what God is like. Now, I can say this all I want, but if you don't have that personal experience, if you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe, maybe I, I'm just spouting words to you. You've got to experience him for yourself. I can't say that enough. And as I said earlier, his disciples, those who walked with Jesus for three years, okay, they saw the, the miracles. They saw all the things that, you know, demons cast out, people raised from the dead, bodies being healed by the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that the Bible doesn't even record. And yet they asked, they were, they were concerned. John 14 Jesus was teaching his disciples concerning his plans to go and prepare a place for them in heaven and then return for them at his second coming. And he was trying to explain to them that they would go where he is going. He's, he's going to leave them and he's going to go to heaven. And he's trying to say, look, you guys are coming with me. And two of the disciples, we know them, Thomas and Philip, they were confused and they started to ask some questions. The first question came from Thomas. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'll read part of it's up there, but he's basically in John 14, 5 through 7. Thomas said to the Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. You've seen God in Christ. And the second question came from Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. He said to him, have I been with you this long or so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Uh-oh, that's a rebuke from Jesus. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? And I've met many people who would tell you, uh, especially in uh, some of the alcoholic recovery programs, the God of my own understanding, they don't feel like they have a need to uh, reach God through Christ. They say, I can, you know, the God of my understanding, I can go straight to the Father. And I don't know somebody very personal to me that believed that. And it was, it was tragic for him to hold that position. I was thankful that my father came off alcohol for 30 plus years. But... I was very, dis very concerned about his position on who Christ was. God was reconciling all things to himself in Christ, verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. In other words, to bring back to a former state of harmony from separation to reconciliation whether things on earth or things in heaven. All spheres of existence, our redemption in Christ, our eventual time resurrected to be in his presence in heaven, all of creation is going to be made fresh and new by his hand. He'll speak it into existence like he did in the beginning. It says all things, 
Keep in mind, the purpose of Christ's death on the cross was to bring all things created by Christ, all things created for Christ, into harmony once again. We know about creation, don't we? Romans 8, 19 through 22. You know, sometimes you, you, you sit out there in the morning and you're having your coffee. At least I get to do that. Praise the Lord, I get to do that. I get to sit and have time and listen to the birds worship God. And, you know, if the day is nice, watch the sunrise. But, you know, sometimes I have to be reminded of this particular passage in Romans, it says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs, together until now. You know, creation is waiting and crying out to God for redemption. And so having made peace through the blood of his cross, from enmity and wrath to peace, that's what Jesus did for us. The blood of his cross. Paul preached Christ and him crucified because this is where the sin problem was dealt with once and for all. He will bring all true believers to himself and glorify them in heaven. He will punish all unbelievers along with Satan and the fallen angels. If Jesus was only a mere man, if he was only just a starting point, or with some mystical emanation from God as they were teaching, he could not reconcile God and man. Only our Lord Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, could make things perfect and just again. If you ever study church history, I know today it seems like nobody likes history. Nobody likes to study history. I'd almost like to ask people to raise hands if you do, but I won't. But I did. You did. So there's only two of you that like history. Oh, there's more people that like history. Oh, okay, I get it. Well, what do I know? I'm just, a, I'm just, anyway. But if you ever study church history, you studied the councils and the creeds and the catechisms and all that stuff, you will quickly learn, as I said earlier, that the early church fathers wrestled mightily with this issue. They wrestled mightily with the mystery of Jesus' nature. So don't be afraid to leave it as a mystery if you don't quite get it all. Just come back and look to Jesus because you're looking at God. And remember what he did for you. You can relate to that no matter what if you're a believer. Amen? Amen? But the fact that you and I can simply state that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, we say that often, we, we should also be thankful that that issue's been settled. And it's been settled for hundreds and hundreds of years. So whenever something new comes around, comes down the pike with some kind of weird off-the-wall question, with no knowledge of church history, no knowledge of the Bible, and no personal understanding of Jesus, we can say that he is fully God and fully man, and that's a settled fact. And we can be thankful for those who went before us. Here's an example from the Nicene Creed. We're, you know, we're not a creedal church, we're not a denomination that hosts the creeds in that sense, but there's nothing wrong with it. 
Nicene Creed was written in 325 AD. It was slightly revised in 381 AD. Let me read it to you. This is what the church would say on a regular basis. They would get together. You may have attended churches that have creeds. We read it today in a sense, a hymn. This is what it's all based on. Nicene Creed reads this way, quote, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And of all things visible and invisible. Where have you heard that before? And one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered. He was buried. And on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and he ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And it continues on after that. As we conclude today, you know I have this sort of new format. We review what we're to know, and then we ask the question, what are we to do? What are we to know from today's message, and then what are we to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to take a bunch of head knowledge and go out there, I know a lot of Bible, but I don't care about you or anything. No, you're not going to be that way. Not going to be that way. That's a problem with a Bible church. It's even a problem in our movement. It's been brought up. You know, we're kind of proud of the fact that we teach God's Word, but we don't teach enough. I don't teach enough of what do we do with it. And so pray for me that I would learn how to communicate that. Let the Holy Spirit work. Amen? Amen. So we know what we know is, first of all, the supremacy of His person. He is the visible manifestation of an invisible God. He is the full expression of the image of God. If you're taking notes. He holds the ownership rights over all creation. He is preeminent over all things. He has taken care of all things. He created all things. He is eternal and sovereign over all the universe. And he is to have the highest rank in everything. Remember that since you are in Christ, he is the full expression of God and you don't need anything else. There is no need to add anything to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. To do that is to take away and to dethrone him. And we don't want to do that. We also learned today of God's perspective. God the Father's perspective. He was pleased to become incarnate in the Son. This pleased the Lord. The Father. God was reconciling all things to himself in Christ. And you cannot call yourself a Christian. If you always choose to ignore or deny who Jesus is. John 5, and 24. Maybe write this down. I'll read it to you. It says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all honor, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He does, who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, what are we to do with that information? 
Are we going to go tumbling out of here with our heads full of Bible knowledge, all fat and dumb and happy? Well, I would say that you and I need to remember your standing before Christ, before coming to Christ. Remember who you were. What's your testimony? You were separated and lost in your sins. You remember where you came from, and now you're thankful, you're humble, and you're gentle. We're not going to join with the rage of society and what's going on out there. Thankful and humble and gentle. There's an application for you. We are also to evaluate our lives and see how we're being conformed or imaged. We talked about the image of God. It's a process. How are we being conformed to Jesus' likeness? What's our behavior? What are our convictions? How do we work? How do we serve? And are we cooperating with God? Because we should live completely for Him. Why? Because He's the beginning and the end. And He is preeminent of all thing, above all things. We are called to be shaped into His image. Are we willing to let Him transform our lives? 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, But we all, this describes what's the process that's happening, brother and sister in the Lord. This is what is described. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. It's progressive. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the question is, is Jesus preeminent in your life? And that could mean many things. It could simply mean that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've had a profession of faith, but you're not living for Him now. You've perhaps slid back. Perhaps you have decided to you know, take it easy and kind of rest. And you find yourself wrestling with your life and circumstances. And the world is coming at you. It's got a lot of things to offer. Maybe you're trapped in a sin problem. Maybe you're uh, addicted to something. And the Lord wants to set you free from that. But he says you have to put him first. Another very important question is, do you know him at all? Do you know him as Lord and Savior? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, each and every one of us. Romans 6.23 says, But the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you want to receive that? Is that something that you want to know more about? Well, Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. And Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock, but you've got to open the door. He says, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in him, to him and dine with him and he with me. In other words, he wants fellowship with you. He's willing to receive that. And so as we close in prayer before we sing our last song together, let's bow our heads and pray and thank the Lord 
for all of his great work that he's done. But for those of you who don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would ask you to give it some serious consideration. There's no harm to ask these questions of God. You can come to him just as you are. You can cry out to him in your heart, right where you're at right now, or maybe you're going to think about this for a period of time. Maybe the Holy Spirit is working on you. He's softening your heart to receive him. But when the time comes that you decide that you're ready to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all you have to do is ask him and say, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner. I need, I need a Savior. And I believe you, Lord, that you, that you died for my sins. And I will receive you, Lord. I will make you first in my life. I will give my life to you because I trust you. I'm sorry that I sinned. But Lord, I want to ask you to just to be in my life. I want you to be preeminent in my life for all of my life. And so that's the kind of prayer you can approach the Father with. And so I would ask you and I would invite you if that's you today, even today in our service, if that's your desire, maybe you need to talk to somebody. You know, maybe the person that brought you to church today invited you could have answers for you. If you'd like to talk to myself or Pastor John at some point, we want to be available for you. But really what we're going to do is point you to Jesus and pray over you. And so, Lord, as we conclude our service today, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you that we had the opportunity and the privilege to exalt your name today and to recognize that you are high above all, that you are preeminent, that you always existed, that you are our all in all, Lord, and we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Strong, 
in the Savior's love through the storm He is Lord Lord of all When darkness seems to hide His face I rest on His unchanged the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. He is Lord, Lord of all. shall come with trumpet sound oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless stand before the throne Christ alone Christ alone Stone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. Just our voices. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the storm. He is Lord, Lord of all. Amen. Well, you guys have a wonderful day in the Lord. And like I said, if anybody would like some prayer, myself, John, Margaret, Miss Heidi, I think, is available for that. Other than that, just in, you know, uh, just go and grow, as we say. What do we say? Go and grow in the knowledge and the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, if I could say that right, you'd probably want to do it, right? Okay, so we'll see you guys. Have a good one. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless. <laughs>